This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, child abuse, child death, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Officer Scott Coonrod circled the perimeter of the Watts family home. He had been called to do a welfare check on 34-year-old Shanann Watts, who wasn't answering her friend's calls or texts. Shanann's car was in the garage, but nobody was coming to the door. Shanann and her two children, 4-year-old Bella and 3-year-old Cece, had apparently disappeared. Shanann's husband, Chris, was on his way home, and Officer Coonrod hoped he'd be able to provide answers. But when Chris Watts parked in front of the house and trotted up the driveway, Officer Coonrod only felt more uneasy. Chris had just learned that his pregnant wife and two young kids were missing, but instead of racing into the house to look for them, he stopped to exchange pleasantries with the officer. Once inside, Chris seemed distracted. He kept looking at his phone. He didn't seem particularly invested in finding hints that might point to the whereabouts of Shanann and the children. After looking through the house, Officer Coonrod suggested they talk to a few neighbors. The man who lived next door, Nathaniel Trinistich, offered to let them look at the footage from the security camera in his driveway. Nathaniel played the security camera footage on his television screen. The video showed Chris's truck leaving for work around 5.30 that morning, but there was no sign of Shanann ever leaving the house or of anybody else arriving. The video itself wasn't remarkable, but Chris's reaction was strange. He kept looking at his phone or up at the ceiling, anywhere but the television screen. He began sweating. He seemed on the verge of panic. Once the video stopped, Chris hurried out of the neighbor's house. Nathaniel turned to Officer Coonrod and voiced what he was already thinking. He's not acting right. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs. And this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. 
The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we explored the marriage between Chris and Shanann Watts. It seemed wonderful on the surface. Shanann's social media was filled with happy posts of their charmed life, but it was all a facade. The couple kept many struggles a secret from their friends and family, including Chris's affair with a coworker. This week, we'll discuss the horrific murders that destroyed the Watts family. We'll also talk about the obsessive public response to the deaths and the aftermath. Late in the summer of 2018, 34-year-old Shanann Watts worried that her marriage to 33-year-old Chris Watts was irreparably damaged. She didn't officially know that Chris was having an affair, but she felt that he'd been pulling away from her for weeks. She was desperate to fix things for the sake of their family. They had two young children and Shanann was 15 weeks pregnant with their third. On August 10th, 2018, Shanann left town for a sales training event in Scottsdale, Arizona, hosted by the direct sales company, Lavelle. She was due to return the night of the 12th. Chris and the children stayed behind in Frederick, Colorado. On the afternoon of the 12th, Chris took his two children to a family friend's birthday party. Chris and the girls all seemed normal. At one point, Cece fell off the swing set and Chris ran to comfort her. The party host noted how good he seemed with the kids. Chris dutifully took pictures of the girls having fun at the party and texted them to Shanann. He told her they were all having a good time. Shanann responded, Good, I'm glad. Okay, I love you. That evening around 5 p.m., Chris and the girls FaceTimed with Shanann to say goodnight. About an hour later, Shanann left her hotel for the airport. She texted Chris that she was ready for her flight back to Colorado. She couldn't wait to be home in bed. But the weather in Scottsdale was bad. Once she got to the airport, she realized that her flight was delayed. She wouldn't take off until after 11 p.m. Around 1.30 a.m. on August 13th, Shanann landed in Denver. She got a ride home from her friend and fellow Lavelle sales rep, Nikki Atkinson. She arrived at the house just before two. Chris was asleep when she got home, but he woke up when she climbed into bed. He felt her stirring. She seemed restless, unable to fall asleep. Chris said that Shanann began stroking his chest. He turned to face her, 
and they had sex. He later said it felt strange, like it was some kind of test. It was as if Shanann wanted to know whether or not they still had a functional marriage. It felt wrong to Chris. He sensed that Shanann knew about his affair and he would soon have to come clean. After they had sex, Chris fell asleep. He woke up early the next morning around 4 a.m. He got ready for work, then woke Shanann up to talk. He felt they had to have a discussion before he left the house. He later said he was worried that Shanann might be on the verge of leaving him and taking the kids with her. He didn't want to go to work until they had at least talked things out. As Chris sat on the bed, looking down at Shanann, he realized he didn't know what he wanted to say. Did he want to save his marriage right now or end it? He wasn't sure. He wasn't even sure who he was anymore. He didn't feel like a husband or a father at that moment. He felt like he was inhabited by a stranger. The old Chris had spent his entire life walking down a set path, one where the road felt safe and familiar beneath his feet. Now, the stranger in his head was beckoning him toward the darkness, and suddenly, Chris couldn't seem to find his footing. Chris saw Shanann was crying. She knew it was over. The path was in shambles. The old Chris found it all horrifying. So he let the stranger take over. He became a new version of Chris. And this one was filled with rage. As they talked, Chris climbed on top of Shanann. His legs straddled her body. She told him to get off. He was hurting the baby, but he didn't. He told her that he didn't love her anymore. She began to cry. At some point, according to Chris, she told him that she was going to leave him and he'd never see the kids again. If this is true, it might have triggered a deadly impulse in Chris. Before I continue with Chris's psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In 2015, Professor of Criminology David Wilson co-authored a study on individuals who kill family members. The study collected data on family killings between 1980 and 2012. Researchers found that the threat of a family breakup was a top motivator behind such crimes it was cited as a precursor to violence in 66% of the cases. Chris later said he wasn't sure if he'd outright planned to kill his wife or not. He said, It felt like there was already something in my mind that was implanted, that I was going to do it, and when I woke up that morning, it was going to happen and I had no control over it. On the morning of August 13th, Chris wrapped his hands around Shanann's neck and strangled her. He said she didn't fight back, and he didn't know why. He thought maybe she was praying. Chris choked Shanann until she died. Moments later, Chris said their four-year-old daughter, Bella, came into the room, dragging her pink and blue blanket behind her. 
She saw her mother and asked Chris what happened. Chris told her that mommy didn't feel good. He wrapped Shanann's body in a sheet and brought her downstairs. Bella began to cry. Chris kept telling her that Shanann didn't feel well. He removed Shanann's wedding ring and left it on the kitchen counter. Then he brought her into the garage. He went out to the driveway where his truck was parked and backed it partway into the garage. Chris lay Shanann on the bench seat in the back of his truck. Then he slipped a trash bag over Shanann's head and another over her feet, completely covering her. When he got back to the house, three-year-old Cece had also woken up and was out of bed. Chris then loaded the two little girls in the truck. He began to drive. The girls fell asleep during the trip, leaning against each other. Chris later said his mind was empty at this time. He wasn't thinking about anything at any point. Chris drove to a remote oil site owned by his employer. He was scheduled to examine an oil leak on the site that morning. When he got there around 6.30 a.m., the field was empty. Nobody else had arrived yet. Chris took out Shanann's body and laid it on the ground. Then he returned to the car. Chris turned to the children in the back seat. He covered Cece's face with her blanket. He pressed one hand against her mouth and nose and wrapped his other hand around her neck. He strangled Cece in the back of the truck. Bella remained still in her seat, watching the father she trusted murder her younger sister. She didn't say a word. After Cece died, Chris removed her body from the truck. At the corner of the oil field, two large tanks loomed over the site. Each tank stored 400 barrels or 16,800 gallons of crude oil. Chris took Cece's body over to the tanks. He carried her up a metal staircase to the top. There, he opened the hatch, revealing a small opening about eight inches wide. Chris dropped Cece's body inside. Then he walked back to the car. When he returned to Bella, she asked, what happened to Cece? Then, is the same thing going to happen to me as Cece? Later, Chris couldn't remember if he answered the girl or not, but he did remember putting the same blanket over Bella's head and smothering her. He recalled her saying, Daddy, no, before he killed her. Chris brought Bella's body to the second oil tank and put her inside. After he had hidden the bodies of his children, Chris returned to Shanann. He dug out a shallow grave about 100 yards away from the oil tanks. He put Shanann's body inside, then he covered her with dirt. After the murders, Chris waited until his coworkers began to show up at the site about an hour later. Chris tried to act normal. He had hidden the bodies in a remote enough location that it was unlikely that anybody might stumble upon them. All he had to do was act like nothing was wrong while he tried to figure out what to do next. But Chris had no way of knowing how quickly his cover-up would unravel. Up next, 
Shanann's friends and family are immediately suspicious of her disappearance. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Now, back to the story. In the early morning hours of August 13th, 2018, 33-year-old Chris Watts murdered his pregnant wife, Shanann, and their two young children, Bella and Cece. Chris went to work that morning at a remote oil site near Rogan, Colorado. His coworkers that day knew he had been the first to arrive at the job site. What they didn't know was that he had hidden the bodies of his wife and children there. Over the course of that morning, Chris took breaks from his work to make several phone calls and texts. He called his children's private school and told them they would no longer be attending. He also reached out to his realtor to talk about selling his house. Both the realtor and the preschool director found it strange that Chris called them. They were used to speaking with Shanann. Some of Chris's coworkers also noticed a few details that stuck out as odd. Chris had come to the site to inspect a leak near the oil wellhead, but he had parked his truck next to the tanks, nowhere near the leak. They also noted that his boots and shirt were shabbier than usual. After the murders, Chris threw out the clothes he was wearing and changed into an old set of spare work clothes he kept in his truck. According to a work acquaintance, Chris also seemed quieter than usual. Still, Chris normally had a reserved demeanor, so his behavior didn't seem that out of the ordinary. Shanann's silence, on the other hand, immediately caught the attention of her friends and family. Shanann was an active Facebook user, posting multiple times a day, every day. Shanann's friend Nikki Atkinson noted Shanann's quiet Facebook page just a few hours after her death. She tried calling and texting Shanann to see if she was okay and got no response. It worried her enough that she called the police and asked them to do a well-being check around 9 o'clock a.m. When they weren't able to send someone right away, Nikki went to the Watts' house herself. She saw that Shanann's car was still in the garage. Nikki thought she must be home. But nobody answered, no matter how hard Nikki knocked. The front door could be opened by a keypad, and Nikki knew the code. However, when she punched it in, she discovered that the door was also locked from the inside with a sliding safety latch. Nikki called Chris and told him she was worried that something happened to Shanann. She thought perhaps Shanann had gotten sick and passed out. Over the phone, 
Chris tried to allay Nikki's fears. He told her Shanann had taken the girls on a play date. Nikki wasn't convinced. This excuse didn't explain why Shanann wasn't answering her texts. And if Shanann had really taken the girls out, Nikki wondered why her car was still there. She had a gut feeling that something horrible had happened to Shanann. She called the police again and asked them to come over. She told Chris the police were on their way. Chris quickly left work to come home. He stopped at a construction dumpster on the way back. He deposited the blanket he'd used to cover the girls' heads before strangling them. He also threw away the clothes he'd been wearing that morning. He texted his girlfriend to tell her his family had gone missing. Then he went home to meet the police. That afternoon, police officers questioned Chris at the house. He told them the same thing he told Nikki, that Shanann had taken the girls on a play date. He didn't know where they were. When he left for work that morning, Shanann had been home and the girls were asleep in bed. He also informed them that he and Shanann had had an emotional conversation early that morning. They had discussed divorce. Chris pretended to find Shanann's wedding ring in the kitchen and showed it to the police. He hoped to make it look like she'd placed it there as a signal that she was leaving him. Officers probed Chris about the state of his marriage. They asked him about infidelity. Chris lied, telling them that he never cheated on Shanann. Instead, he suggested Shanann might be seeing someone else. Chris gave police permission to search the house. They found Shanann's cell phone, wallet, purse, and medication inside. It seemed unlikely that she'd left the house without any of these belongings. Chris's story didn't seem to add up. That evening, police canvassed the neighborhood and put out a press release about the missing woman and children. The next day, August 14th, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation activated an endangered missing alert about the family. They urged the public to spread the message on social media, hoping someone might call in with a lead. Chris gave a television interview in which he begged for his wife and children's safe return. He talked about how much he missed them. He concluded, I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete without anybody here. Many watching found the interview odd. Although the literal words themselves reflected worry, Chris didn't show any emotion when he spoke. Psychotherapist Lena Derhali was struck by how indifferent he seemed when talking about his family. Derhali later wrote a book about Chris and noted that it was this initial interview that first drew her attention to the case. She described how his voice remained monotone, mixed with little laughs and suppressed smirks. She explained, my theory is that Chris was possibly born with empathy deficits. He could potentially be both a psychopath and a communal narcissist. He certainly has traits of both. Although Chris's behavior struck some as odd, the interview did draw attention to the case. That afternoon, word spread about the disappearance of Shanann, Bella, and Cece. 
Chris's girlfriend, 30-year-old Nicole Kessinger, read more and more about the case. Based on what Chris had already told her, Nicole thought Shanann had left him and taken the kids with her. But news reports contained some details Chris hadn't shared, like the fact that Shanann was 15 weeks pregnant. Nicole was horrified. Chris had told her that the marriage was all but over and that they were no longer intimate, that they slept in separate rooms, that they were about to get a divorce. Clearly, he had lied. Now Nicole wondered what else he might be lying about. Because Chris wasn't quite playing the role of a tormented husband and father, concerned for his missing children, the night after the murders, he even sent out an email to friends regarding his fantasy football league. Later, he went to the Frederick Police Department for an interview with Special Agent Graham Coder with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Chris repeated the story he had told the police. Shanann said she was taking the girls on a play date. Agent Coder asked Chris if he would return the following day to take a polygraph exam. Chris agreed. The next morning, August 15th, Chris picked up his father, Ronnie, from the airport. Together, they went on to the police station for the polygraph. As Chris drove to the station, he half listened to his father chatting about sports. He was struck by a strange feeling. Right now, he was still a free man. These were his last moments of freedom. This car ride, this conversation, this was it. He knew that his life was about to come crashing down around him. Investigators were already treating him like a suspect, and now he was on his way to take a polygraph test he had no way of passing. He wondered how he was staying so calm as he inched forward toward the end of his life. He didn't really feel afraid. In fact, he couldn't seem to feel anything at all. A week ago, it occurred to him that he didn't really feel like a husband and father anymore. He'd gotten so wrapped up in an affair, he felt like a different man. Now, he wondered whether he was even human. Around the same time Chris went to take his polygraph test, his girlfriend, Nicole, also contacted the police. Chris's lies had made her so suspicious she couldn't let go of the nagging feeling that something was horribly wrong. She wanted to come forward with everything she knew. She came to the station for an interview and told them about her affair with Chris. Investigators now had proof that Chris had lied to them earlier when he said he had never cheated on his wife. Nicole's statements were corroborated by emails pulled from Chris's work account. Investigators did not let on to Chris about what they knew. They simply administered the polygraph test. Only after it was over did they tell him that it was clear he wasn't being truthful. CBI agents began an interrogation, trying to elicit a confession. Chris finally admitted to his affair, but he still insisted he had no idea what happened to his wife or children. When they pressed him, he asked to speak to his father. The agents allowed Ronnie to enter the room. When Chris was alone with his father, 
he told Ronnie that he was in trouble. He concocted a story based on half-truths. He said that he and Shanann had an argument the morning of the 13th. They had discussed separating. Then, Chris claimed that Shanann had attacked and killed the girls. Chris caught her in the act and was so enraged that he murdered her. He said he panicked and hid the bodies. Ronnie was horrified. Chris's family had always been at odds with Shanann, but he still struggled to believe that she would hurt her children. On the other hand, he couldn't believe his son was capable of hurting them either. So, he accepted Chris's story, that Shanann had killed the children, and Chris had retaliated in the heat of passion. He reportedly told Chris, well, we need to find a good lawyer and see what the hell they can do. When the CBI agents returned to the room, Chris told them what he had told Ronnie, that his wife and children were dead. He also told them where the bodies were located at the oil field. They placed Chris Watts under arrest. That afternoon, investigators flew drones over the oil field. They captured photos of a bedsheet and two plastic garbage bags tangled in the grass. These were the items Chris used to wrap up Shanann's body. Hours later, officers gathered at the field to excavate Shanann's gravesite. They recovered her body just after midnight on August 16th. The following afternoon, the oil tanks were drained. The bodies of Cece and Bella were removed and taken to a medical center in Loveland, Colorado. Days later, Chris was arraigned and officially charged. He faced three counts of first-degree murder for the deaths of Shanann, Bella, and Cece. The affidavit also included counts of unlawfully terminating a pregnancy and tampering with a deceased body. In the first week of September 2018, Shanann and the children were laid to rest in a funeral service in North Carolina. While Shanann's relatives celebrated their lives, Chris's parents did not attend. Chris, of course, was also absent. He remained in jail. He was being held without bond and facing a potential death sentence for slaughtering his family. Coming up, prosecutors build their case against Chris as public interest in the case skyrockets. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the story. In the late summer of 2018, 33-year-old Chris Watts was arrested and charged for the murders of his pregnant wife, Shanann, and their two children, Bella and Cece. When it was clear that police suspected foul play, Chris tried to pin the girls' murders on Shanann. He said he caught his wife strangling them, and then he lost his mind and killed Shanann when he found his daughters dead. But it wasn't long before he dropped this argument. Chris came to trust the public defenders appointed to his case. A few weeks after his arrest, he confessed everything to them. He killed the girls. He told them that he didn't want to fight the charges in a long, drawn-out case. In exchange for pleading guilty, Chris would face a life sentence in prison rather than the death penalty. On November 6, 2018, Chris Watts entered a guilty plea to all the charges. His decision to plead guilty was a relief for most of the horrified residents of Frederick, Colorado, still reeling from the heartbreak of losing a young mother and her children. But not everyone was satisfied. Even after Chris agreed to a plea deal, his parents still seemed to cling to his original story, that he had only murdered Shanann after witnessing her killing the children. They felt he should have fought the murder charges against him. Chris's parents sat for an interview a few days after he entered his guilty plea. His mother insisted, he's not a sociopath, he's not a psychopath. She added, I just want him to fight. I don't want him to take this plea deal. I want him to plead not guilty to the children. Despite her objections, the plea deal moved forward. On November 19th, Chris Watts appeared at a sentencing hearing. He was sentenced to three life terms. After the hearing, Chris returned to the Weld County Jail, and he was eventually transferred to a prison in Wisconsin. But the case did not quickly fade away from public consciousness. People remained fascinated, Some even tried to capitalize on the case's notoriety to boost their own public profile. A few individuals, including a man from Glen Rock, Wyoming, and a woman from Greeley, Colorado, claimed they had met Chris through dating apps and had sexual encounters with him prior to the murders. These claims had little credibility, but they revealed how deeply people wanted to connect to the Watts story. From the earliest days of the case, ever since Shanann had been reported missing, members of the public were fascinated, perhaps because the Watts' lives seemed to be an open book. Shanann's Facebook profile was public. She gave everyone a window into their world. Even people who never met her could feel like they knew her. It seemed unthinkable that this perfect family could have met such a horrifying end. Beyond Shanann's social media presence, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation was remarkably transparent about their work on the matter. On November 22, 2018, 
Just a few days after Chris's sentencing, the Bureau released its case file to the public. The file contained over 2,000 pages of detailed notes, reports, and interviews relating to the murders. For true crime fanatics, it was a goldmine of information. It invited people from all over the world to study and speculate on the Watts family tragedy. Crime blogs and Reddit groups sprang up to discuss every detail of the case. For some, Chris Watts emerged as a sympathetic figure, which meant they viewed Shanann as the villain. Some thought Chris was telling the truth in his first confession. They believed Shanann had killed Bella and Cece, and not Chris. They felt Chris Watts suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, which caused him to snap. They claimed the disorder was caused by prolonged emotional abuse from his marriage to Shanann. They circulated conspiracy theories questioning Shanann's character, digging for evidence that she was a liar and a criminal. This kind of victim blaming is not uncommon after a tragedy. Dr. Sherry Hamby, a professor of psychology and founding editor of the Psychology of Violence Journal, relates victim blaming to the just world hypothesis. She explained, it's this idea that people deserve what happens to them. There's just a really strong need to believe that we all deserve our outcomes and consequences. Those who blame Shanann for her own murder targeted her family with online abuse. Her father, Frank Rusek, released a statement saying, Our family, including Shanann and her children and our grandchildren, have been ridiculed, demeaned, slandered, mocked in the most vicious ways you can imagine. We have been subject to false accusations, fake Facebook accounts, hate speeches, and a constant stream of ugly, evil insults and attacks. Every time we turn around, there is someone trying to capitalize on our tragedy by spreading false rumors and outright lies about Shanann and our grandchildren. The abuse was heartbreaking for a family already in mourning. Others didn't outright blame Shanann, but they still tried to deflect responsibility from Chris. Some theorized that he wasn't himself at the time of the murders. They suggested that vitamin supplements and energy products had pushed Chris over the edge. Chris frequently used Thrive products sold by Shanann as a sales rep for Lavelle. Chris had appeared in dozens of social media videos promoting these products, but he later said that they had some negative effects, including insomnia. At one point, he talked to investigators about using the Duo Burn Patch for weight loss, stating, I just know I felt different. I could go longer and longer each day, and that was probably a bad thing. I don't think I was probably sleeping more than three hours a night. Chris also said his parents had received letters from people all over the world warning them that Thrive products were not FDA approved and that they contained stimulants and could have mind-altering properties. Internet commenters and bloggers seemed obsessed with the idea of finding some excuse that could explain Chris's behavior. It didn't seem possible that Chris could have gone from the typical family man to a cold-blooded killer overnight. 
But even though Chris's actions seem to defy explanation, in some ways, they fit a horrendous pattern. In many ways, Chris matches the profile of the family annihilator, a type of murderer who kills close family members in quick succession. These types of killers tend to be white men in their 30s, according to former FBI agent Brad Garrett. Garrett added that family annihilators are often motivated by a sense of losing identity. 33-year-old Chris Watts had nursed resentment for years about the way Shanann controlled him. Eventually, this rage boiled to the surface. Dr. Neil Websdale, the director of the Family Violence Institute at Northern Arizona University, spoke about the Watts case in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine. He said, Some cases involve very violent controlling batterers who are misogynistic, who engage in lots of acts of domestic violence up until the time of the killing. At the other end of the continuum, you're looking at more controlled, repressed, depressed individuals who may be on the edge of a psychotic break. But this sudden break isn't necessarily spontaneous. FBI agent Garrett said that family annihilator crimes are often premeditated. The anger leading up to the murders often builds up for weeks or months beforehand. But while these individuals may spend many hours contemplating murder, they usually don't put a lot of careful planning into their crimes. They don't often think of future consequences when they carry out the murders. Instead, according to Agent Garrett, they focus on the immediate need and gain of the moment. These men often confess after the crime, but sometimes create an alternate version of what happened as Chris did. Eventually, however, Chris repudiated his former lies. In February of 2019, Chris sat down for an interview with the investigators who had handled his case. In the interview, he gave a full confession to the murders. He emphasized that Shanann was a good mother who had never hurt her children. He told investigators he didn't want anyone to bash Shanann's memory. He wanted to clear her name and give her parents closure by speaking out. Chris spoke until his throat was dry. He talked for hours. It wasn't something he wanted to do, but it was something he felt he had to do. He had to share everything to get the whole story out. Perhaps his confession would put an end to all the speculation and the gossip. Maybe then the fervor would finally go away and his family could stop reliving this hell. Chris spoke flatly about the last morning with Shanann and the girls. He heard his own voice recounting the horrors, but his mind and body felt somewhere else. He still couldn't feel the weight of it all, even after months of prison. He wondered if it would ever fully hit him or if he would remain like this forever, detached from reality. Perhaps he had permanently destroyed the part of himself that was capable of confronting the truth. Perhaps he was better off without it. In his confession, Chris expressed his regret. He told investigators he kept pictures of his children on the wall of his prison cell. 
he said he talked to them every night. Even so, he expressed very little emotion when discussing the brutal crimes. He didn't seem to show remorse, grief, or anguish, only confusion. He said, I don't see how this could happen. Every time I see pictures of them now, I don't know how this could happen. This question is the one that continues to drive people's obsession with the case. Chris Watts may not have had the perfect family, but he ostensibly had everything he needed to enjoy a happy life full of loved ones and good memories. For Chris, it wasn't enough. He is still reckoning with that fact. He told his interviewers in February of 2019, right now, I'd have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and more than likely a one-month-old son and a beautiful wife. And right now, it's just me. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.